Hello, this is Journeys in Podcasting, and today we're going to be talking to Dr. Stephanie Cox Suarez, who has a jaw-dropping resume, currently at Wheelock College, um, I believe head of the documentation lab. Um, so I wonder if you might introduce yourself and explain how this got started. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Stephanie, and um, I've been at Wheelock for over 20 years, and we're in Boston. Um, and I've been involved with research with the Project Zero Making Learning Visible group. Um, I was one of the maybe phase two or phase three research, and they were looking for teacher educators to think about documentation in higher education. So that was really interesting for me to think about um, practicing what you preach. If you're going to have uh, teachers learn about documentation, what does it feel like to be documented while you're learning about documentation? Um, so I worked with a small group of, of colleagues from Leslie University in Wheelock and um, Terry Turner from Project Zero. Um, and then that, I got connected with Tiziana Filippini in Reggio. She's the director of pedagogy and the large documentation center there in Reggio. So I invited her, I think it's probably been five times as a visiting scholar here at Wheelock. And we actually gave her an honorary degree um, about two years ago. So she's the one who encouraged me to set up a documentation studio at Wheelock. It felt like New England was a great place, uh, this network of educators learning about documentation. And can you take this and actually share it and have a space to learn from each other? So the studio has been around since about 2007. Um, wow. And so prior to that, uh, you were Peace Corps in Kathmandu, is that, that correct? Yeah. Uh, and what I gathered from your bio is that you were designing uh, education programs for the blind, uh, structures for their for their education department. Uh, and then after that, you were um, a special education teacher as well. Um, so this, to me, is a special lens for documentation. And so I hope we can kind of unpack some of this over the 45 minutes to an hour we have here. Um, okay, so uh, as you know, I, I over-prepared a lot of questions, but uh, I'm, I'm gonna kind of quote some of your writings to you and then see if we can un unpack them a little bit. This is free-floating, so uh, let them go anywhere or don't answer them if you don't want to. Uh, <laughs> so uh, the first one is about predictable outcomes. And so you wrote that the tool of Reggio-inspired documentation is described for families with suggestions on how to advocate and support teachers who want to tell a story about children's learning that highlights social language, collaboration, and problem solving, and to serve as evidence in meeting required curriculum standards. So I feel like you're writing a balance here. Standards will always fall short of what needs to be learned. They tell us nothing of how learning happens, and they provide no basis of why we learn, and yet they become the valued currency, the criteria of accountability, and how we plan, proceed, and measure whether learning has happened. Any currency, our money especially, only has value because of a collective agreement in its value. I wonder if we might open with what's wrong with this currency of standards and how documentation could become the justification of what, how, and why in learning. Well, that's a big one. And um, I guess I... We, we, we don't start small. We, we well, have no. And I guess for me, I, I, I find that you should flip it. I think you should document learning. You should go gu be guided by 
the teacher and the children's interests. Obviously, there's material and content that would, needs to be learned and probably should be learned, and there should be some standardization. But I find once you start documenting learning, then you apply some standards. You can decide how you're going to align standards, and you'll be more than you'll find more standards than than was an, the originators of those standards even imagined. I think when you have some rich narrative and rich documentation. Um, find some learning that isn't even documented in standards. I mean, the, the, the softer skills, I suppose, are our 21st century skills um, that are so quickly forgotten, but collaboration and problem solving and negotiating. Um, but I've often, I've actually done some exercises where I will document a learning experience, and then I might invite a science expert to say, would you look at this documentation? What science standards do you see here? And she's like, oh, well, and then she can list them off. And sometimes I'll just put a little sidebar of, okay, here's the standards that this learning experience addressed. And um, I would flip it that way. Uh, I run a blog called Teacher's Lens, but I'm thinking this podcast should be more about lenses on learning, this idea of bringing multiple specialists together to give different perspectives sometimes from the same content. Um, I wonder if you might address this part of, of making, because I know in early childhood, uh, in Reggio, the making process is, is always evident. Um, and in, in your um, text you wrote that one boy was a leader with a strong uh, social language skills. Another boy had a very quiet voice and rarely spoke. Another had difficulty putting sentences together but had excellent hand skills to create intricate designs. The documentation that Laura collected over the year um, helped her see the progress across boys' language and social skills. Last summer, I read um, Roland Barthes' Mythologies, where he differentiates between the language of action upon the world and the metaphorical language of myth. I kind of have two things I want to ask you. Um, one, you've noticed that documenting active language, or have you noticed that active language, the language of doing and making things, is a more, more rapid development, a quicker social construction than when language is removed from the act of doing something. Um, and the second is that when you make learning visible through an artifact, uh, you talk about this circuitous discussion, that it's okay for this to happen. And now having this artifact um, for making our thinking visible, um, how does it make it easier to circuitously talk beyond the one or two premeditated standards to be measured and approach the kind of infinite complexity of a learning system? I think I gave you about a book's worth of questions there, but uh, I, I can repeat any of those. <laughs> well, about the active language, I um, and when I'm working with um, pre-service and in-service teachers and we're talking about practicing documenting, I always say, write the words down. We want, don't just say the child picked up the pen and then he looked at his friend and then he, don't tell us, don't describe it in a passive way. As, as best you can, pull out the actual words that the child said. Um, to me, that that's really powerful. And um, then we can interpret it later. Um, so I think the act of language is really important and, and, and much more meaningful. Um, I think people would rather read what a child, the actual words of a child. And I've often had children know, I, when I document, I use my laptop and I, um, I can type very quickly. And um, I've had children look at me, they're working in a group and they'll look at me and say, 
Did you get that? Can you read it back to us? <laughs> um, and I love that because I know I am listening so carefully and I'll, um, and they might correct me and say, no, I, I didn't mean that. And then they'll tell me what they, what they meant when they were trying to describe something they're working on. Um, I'm not sure that's exactly where you were thinking about with active language, but um, for me, that's what resonates with active language and really in the moment in capturing children's words. This to me is a, an ethnography approach to this idea of showing, not telling, which is pervasive throughout the TC reading and writing program. Or if you look at design thinking mindsets and methods, that, that idea of, um, not trying to interpret it, but actually uh, show it um, so that so that the the multiple perspectives can be pulled out of that. Is, is that kind of what you mean? Yes, exactly. I think there's a lot of hand in hand with ethnography and really the whole point of is why would you even do this? It's really to get multiple perspectives um, in a situation like you're talking about with other teachers in a podcast or professional development or sharing it with a family or sharing it with the child, which I think is really important. But um, you, you got to also ask, well, why are you doing this? Um, um, and there's no point in doing it unless you're really going to interpret it and reflect and share it. Hmm. Um, about assessment, thinking uh, quality, not quantity. Um, you wrote that she finds a few minutes during the block each day um, to not only encourage, but to model for the boys how to listen to each other, how to refer to each other by name, and how to build on each other's ideas. This is one brief moment in a year-long study led by five boys who were four to five years old toward their design of the best marble ramp in the world. She took a few minutes, um, a, a few minutes each day for weeks to listen and to write notes, take photos, um, and to video. So this idea of keeping feedback and student conferencing real when you have 25 to 30 students is, is a monumental feat. I, I know a, and for beginning teachers, this, you kind of get swamped in just trying to cover the assessments of everything. Um, my best strategy, strategy came from a Bible-thick book called Balanced Literacy, where I learned to give five students writing careful reading and written feedback so that the next day we could conference over this for uh, 10 to 15 minutes each. Like a Reggio Emilia teacher, I felt something like a researcher and I wasn't even documenting all the social constructing surrounding the writing. Um, what tools, methods, suggestions would you give to teachers who are frustrated with the covering of assessment and crave depth? Well, I like your, your strategy of targeting five children a day. I think that's great. Um, the one thing I sometimes I think about is I think about what my yoga teacher would tell me, you know, a balance of effort and ease and you can't document everything and trying to think about wh why do you decide to spend the time to document, to really sit and listen. And there's all these purposes of documentation. There's all kinds of situations that we could talk about a little bit later, but really it has to be something that you're curious about. And if you don't have the curiosity, I don't, I'm not sure there's the real motivation. Um, children can tell when you're curious. Children know when you when you really want to understand what's going on, either individually or while they're in a small group. And I also noticed that um, a few minutes of documenting or videotaping can go a long way. I, I sometimes, you know, I can capture a lot of information in five or ten minutes. Um, and I think 
sometimes teachers could collect too much video, too much information, and then it just becomes unwieldy. Um, so again, this idea of effort and ease um, and trying to um, collect some information that is probably pretty rich, even in just the five or ten minutes that you were able to, to document. I have to say, um, Laura Shea is my one of my heroes. <laughs> so she's in Boston Public Schools, and she does have a lot of students in her classroom. She allowed me to write that article about her year-long uh, documentation project that I was able to help her with. Um, and I just, you know, she had a lot of children with some special needs. She didn't always have a full-time teaching assistant. Um, and she's very creative in finding just those five minutes here and there to, to document and to keep ideas moving along and having children know that they're being listened to in a very real way. So it's impressive. Yeah, so um, I've seen it repeated in, in your writings and some of the other um, making learning visible and regio uh, literature, this idea of having the purpose of your documentation in mind uh, and that following that purpose. And yet sometimes I feel like what I've learned when I review documentation, and I, I don't think I've done it quite as in-depth or as uh, purposefully as the Reggio Emilia program describes. However, what I have learned is by going through student recordings, by, by listening to myself in discussion with them, by listening to discussions by themselves, is a really close listening and a, uh, to the process of what's going on and finding the purpose post-production that, you know, in, in um, you know, documenting discussion is kind of wondering, okay, well, what can I use this for? And then as I actually listen to it, I realize, no, this is the assessment right here. Here I can find and define what I want to teach next. Um, there's a lot of, you know, continuity play there between the moment of documenting and the next day and things like that, um, which we'll get into in a second because you, you mentioned that as well. In methods, uh, Meredith Dodd, uh, I, I saw her giant spirals of documentation where she has um, dictations of, you know, every conversation she's had uh, for like seven years. Um, and you also mentioned taking uh, photos uh, and and video videos, which you just warned not to take too much because it can get really wieldy to digest, but maybe just video clips. Um, mm -hmm. Outside of those three methods, uh, in, any advice on like how to package those or how to reflect on them or how to create uh, inputs from different players in the learning environment? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I'm just going to give you two that drop come to mind right now. Um, I tend to use um, PowerPoint. Um, so if I've got a group of children and I've got my laptop, I open up a PowerPoint blank, got my slides ready, and I just start typing the words I hear from the kids next to me. I'll grab the camera when it looks like, ah, something, something, this, this isn't, I see some good engagement here. I'm going to get a shot of that. Or I see hands on paper. I see children pointing to somebody else's work. I want to capture that. So I'll write in my PowerPoint slide, see photo boy or whatever, you know, something that's going to remind me when I go back to my camera. Um, and I might set up maybe four or five slides of that interaction. And then that way I, later I am reminded of which photo is a good match with that, um, with that went with that conversation of children. Um, 
So that's just a quick, simple way of doing it. But once you've got it on PowerPoint, I've often um, printed it out and put it on the wall so kids could see it the next day, help to relaunch that conversation that had happened. Um, I know you also talk about just the structure of school and how we have our 45-minute blocks or, you know, and how to, how to deal with that. And I, 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 I think that's a, one big powerful tool of documentation is relaunching and um, reminding where we left off with a photo or a few uh, bits of words and then just jump right back into that conversation as best you can with that documentation. Um, and that PowerPoint could be a little sloppy, it could just be, but it's got some words and some photos matched. You can um, print it pretty quickly. Um, so that's just my sort of quick and dirty, because sometimes, and, and I often find I just, we're all busy. And if I leave that space and I have to run to a meeting or run somewhere else, the, the I don't know, the power of that moment starts to lose on me. So I just make myself sit there for the five minutes to add the photos, clean up the words, say a little bit more about what I thought was happening and save it. And then, you know, work on it a little bit more later. But um, to me, that that could be a, a, a it, it's worked for me uh, over the years. And I, um, I, I recommend something like that. And then another thing that came to my mind that you're saying, so what do you do with some of this documentation is um, kind of what we call looking at student work Maybe you've um, talked about that in some of your uh, studies and looking at like some of Steve Seidel's writing, but using the documentation as a form of student work or looking at teacher work, but um, using that as a, as a foundation for the, a discussion on what's happening in the learning and um, making it very immediate in a, in, a, in a following a protocol. The Italians don't like this protocol, but <laughs> it works to sort of structure a conversation. Let's say we have 15 minutes. Let's look at this student work. When you say the Italians don't like that protocol, you mean like the, the kind of front-loading? They like to go on and talk and talk and oh. <laughs> <laughs> elaborate and circuitous. And if we say, you know, we've got a teacher meeting that's 45 minutes and we're going to devote 15 minutes to look at student work, it helps to have a protocol which means there's a set of questions and guidelines and how to address this piece of work. Yeah. So I, I get you like in, I guess that, that comes up a lot with collaborative culture where uh, right. looking at the Project Zero's thinking moves, for example, um, right. where I guess in criticism or where I would criticize them, criticize them is that um, the pre-programming thought that, that, you know, the best collaborative culture happens just kind of, there it just it, it just happens in the environment of the classroom and yet for efficiency sake and leading to other thinking moves of simple see think wonder routine or a simple check out and check into classroom with the north south east west these are like gold in in getting a culture of collaboration rolling in the classroom so um, i'm definitely with you there um so I came to Reggio Emilia through um, Hectalina Donado, who ran and started and ran a Reggio Emilia program in Barranquilla, Colombia, uh, at Colegio Parish. And even though I taught second and then third grade there, I received the students who'd come out of the Reggio Emilia program, and I was tending towards a project model, even though I wouldn't call myself project-based learning, but I would definitely go for these kind of thematic, long uh, studies. Um, and the kids just ate it up. Like they, it's kind of like they've been 
what what happened to this part of my life that was here two years ago and you know now we have it again so i want to focus on this idea of what students can do and going back to laura again so uh, you say when, when laura reviewed all the documentation she collected she had evidence with clear examples of how the boys had developed skills of problem solving negotiation and science concepts of height movement and force as parents we often know what our children are capable of doing but these strengths may not be evident in a standardized test. As a skilled teacher, Laura used the boys' deep and engaging interest in block play as an opportunity to collect, to collect documentation that had also met critical kindergarten standards. So going back to Hectalina, um, in my first teacher observation from her, it looked like this. She came in, she sat with a student, very ethnography style. She stayed for an hour. She wrote pages of notes. Um, and then in our recap conference, she proceeded to tell me in detail every amazing thing she witnessed going on in the class, not one negative comment. She changed what is normally a demeaning experience of, of being observed. Um, and then later she brought me literature books in areas where she had seen a passion or maybe where she had seen an area of weakness. Um, and of course, like I immediately wanted to create this same kind of experience for my students um, of, of plussing everything they did through documentation. Um, how have you seen administrators collaborating around documentation to move teachers forward? And what would your advice be for administrators who are serious about this to get involved? Well, I, I mean, I actually, so this idea of looking at student work is something I've seen administrators use as a way of making a, a, a staff meeting really real. If there is an issue that a teacher's having or a question that someone has and you ask them, we'll bring some evidence, bring some documentation to our next meeting. Um, let's unpack it together. Let's think about what did you say? What did you do? What do others say um, in this sort of protocol of unpacking a situation or a little bit of documentation? Um, I think that's a powerful tool. I know I'm using that a lot with my graduate students and undergrad students to really think about, well, I start every class with looking at student work and everybody has to bring student work as a bringing a child into that space and let's, um, let's understand what they're thinking. What learning do you see? Um, what did you hope they would learn? What might you do differently um, to deepen that learning? Um, so that's one. And then the other thing, I, I do know one um, administrator who actually wrote an article in that special issue that I edited on documentation, and I can send that to you later, but, um, and I'll say her name. She and I are working together, but Sue Twombly was, she's now retired, but she was the director of the Infant Toddler Center. And she, there was an issue um, in the school about food. There was some discussion. Uh, disagreement. I, you know, I'm not sure what the right word is between families' uh, preferences for food served and food brought in, and and uh, the faculty, the teaching faculty's ideas about food. And instead of sort of steering away from that, so much of the best documentation I've seen is when it's really juicy and there's something, you know, some dilemma. And to use that and to just be right up front and transparent about it. Um, I think she's collected some phrases and words from people, some emails she might have received, some photos she might have collected, and, and use that uh, for a multi-month description and, and unpacking of the issue until they came up with some solutions. But 
she documented the process and then wrote about it. Sorry, sorry if these questions are kind of jumping from place to place, but I kind of wrote them out. And, <laughs> sorry. So this next one is called The Mad Philanthropist. Um, the current, you write, the current push for the Common Core standards in English language arts and mathematics, although thoughtful and well-written, and I, I would agree it's some of the most coherent standards I've worked with, requires a new national standardized evaluation. There are benefits to a concerted focus to increase the learning of all of our nation's children, but at what cost? Not all children can meet all the standards and demonstrate their learning in a single standardized evaluation. We also know that 21st century learning skills include collaboration, communication, critical thinking, and creativity. Anyone who glances at the Harvard Business Review will see this repeatedly and repeatedly, the calling for these skills. Um, this week, an article came out in The Guardian that highlighted the push for coding in schools as an attempt to flood the market with coders, essentially creating a pool of cheap labor for tech companies to pull from. Uh, not to downplay coding as an essential 21st century literacy skill, but I have to agree with Yang Zhao um, that Common Core, even though it's coherent, is about national control of education. What are your thoughts on documentation, ownership of localized learning, um, I know Obama has justified standardized testing as the only means of helping our disadvantaged schools. Um, so how, how can documentation sort of open up this picture to more perspectives? You don't have to comment on that if you don't want. No, no, I will. I mean, I, I also, the, a group of us who work together from different colleges, we used to think that documentation and, uh, was a, also a form of democracy. Um, and by having multiple ways of uh, understanding how people are, what they're thinking and learning, um, allowed for multiple ways of, of expressing what you know and how you, how you can um, taking in the information. It's it's a little. That's what brought me to documentation as a special educator, um, to really have multiple ways of understanding people's learning. Um, and I, I, I do, I do look for a balance with that standardization. To be honest, I know too many children who've been pushed through school to a high school diploma and not able to read. Um, I do understand that particularly families of children of color and um, low income see that happen too often. Let's just get this kid through. Um, and I think standards are important for that. And also as a special educator, I, I've, I've seen the bar set so that I've seen a, a more in-depth uh, curriculum built, particularly for our students with intellectual disabilities. Um, having access to the general curriculum is important. So I, I see a balance there. Um, and, I, and I don't see why documentation has to be at odds with that. I, I think we need to figure it out. I think we have to figure out a way how we can still have a high bar for learning, but have multiple ways of showing what, how people have reached these some standards um, and how to find that narrative and that it can't all just be a, a narrative there on what we've learned about children and what they can express to us. Um, let's talk about that idea of the narrative. When I started reading, uh, your research articles, the, you hooked me right from the get-go when you talked about learning as a narrative and how documentation threads that narrative. Um, you write that educators call this a tool of documentation to understand a process of learning, 
that is collected over time using photos, video, written notes, conversations between children and teachers. Teachers periodically review documentation, reread the notes, speculate, and in interpret the learning, show it to another adult for their opinion, and just as importantly, show the document, share that documentation with, with children. When documentation is episodic, and this is not your writing, this is my question, it's easily manipulated into a multitude of interpretations. And maybe that's one of the reasons why it's not taken so seriously. Um, but when I see the way that Reggio Emilia and Project Zero approach this, of de defining purpose in a learning trajectory, um, and then repeatedly uh, iterating the documentation of that, of that purpose, um, how do you recommend, recommend that teachers get started. Um, you know, I know that like pictures, video carry a kind of connotation in our culture of, you know, selfies or uh, children responding to cameras by immediately going into the cute reflex of doing the cute thing for the camera, which and I know in this culture in Colombia, they're, they're very trained to do. Um, how do you recommend they, they get started? Um, I think something very simple um just that whole idea of being led by your curiosity um sometimes i'm lucky enough to get to go into a classroom and i've been asked to just see what's happening and to document and you know i might sit there for 10 15 minutes and then watch a little girl look at her paper and then run to a wall and back to her paper and run to a wall and that and it's like what is she what's what what's happening um, and to realize that she sees a word on the wall that she can't remember the letters enough to write them down. She's four years old and she's trying to, the visual memory that it takes to, to write a word down is requiring her to run back and forth. But to see her put together a, a sentence um, that the teacher hadn't realized she could even put these, put a word, set of words together. So it's kind of those moments in time. And I, that's what I would start is just some moments in time. Um, again, I, you know, situation of a, of a young boy in kindergarten, morning meeting, everyone's been chosen their job. No, everyone gets up and it's time to move along. And, um, he's still on the rug and I, I can tell, I can see it's going to happen. He's going to get reprimanded. Come on, Adam, it's time to move on. You chose blocks. Why aren't you at the blocks? And he's still fooling with his fingers. And I realize, and then I take a photo of it. Um, the teacher had been talking about first and second and third, and he couldn't do that third. And he was still practicing and processing how to make that third with his fingers. Um, quick, it's like if I had turned my head, I would have missed it. But to capture it and take a photo and then show the teacher later for her, like, oh my God, there's so, I think those things happen all the time. I think. From my gut feeling, children want to learn. They are learning. They're processing. They're engaged. And we're so busy and so quick to make a, a decision about why someone didn't move on the, off the rug to their block area when they just needed a little more time. So I, I, I think once teachers get a moment, sometimes I say to a teacher, get a special hat. Put this baseball cap on. And that's your observation hat. And all the kids will know. Um, that this teacher is taking five minutes to observe, and it's 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 allowed. It's okay. Um, see what she sees. Um, see what picture she might capture, or a few words she might note. I would start really small like that. Uh, you know, as, as you're saying that, I'm just thinking of like my first, uh, you know, bringing a video camera into the classroom, and it was with that exact same goal. That as a teacher, you see, 
or maybe you don't see, but you, you could be seeing, there's a thousand incredible things that happen in every day. I mean, literally, if you've got 25 kids in the classroom, something magical is happening. And so if we can just start capturing little of those points, you can turn the most negative environment into an incredibly positive experience. Um, the second would be the curation. Um, I really got excited about this idea years ago. This is very labor intensive. I don't recommend people do this um, unless you just really want to delve into um, student, uh, the narratives of student roundtable discussions. So we had this thing called Reading Symposium at the end of the week. And the goal was to make it as student-led as possible, kind of like a Socratic circle. In fact, it's based out of University of Chicago. Um, and so what I would do then is take that home at night and just thread together the most intelligent things a kid said. And when you played it back, it sounded like the kid had just written an incredible essay in, in oral form, whereas the original version, of course, has a million, um, I forgot what I was saying, you know, like all of these kind of stumbling moments along the way. And so my goal, of course, was to just boost this kid up and make them feel as good as possible, but also for the, the teachers to, to see that as well. And you wrote that if just shown the final ramp design, the viewer could not possibly appreciate the depth and range of conversation, exploration, social language skills, and problem solving that went into this year-long conversation to reach the final design. In our mythology of school and learning, traditionally we look at products, usually grades, maybe a test, a published paper with a rubric, etc. Uh, Carol Dweck unpacks this in The Growth Mindset, but in a recent talk with Corey Rosseth, he really emphasized the idea of peer relationships and cooperative goal structures as great indicators of how learning happens. How does documentation not just highlight the magic in the process of learning, the student at the center, but also the collaborative nature of a learning community? It's hard to document learning of an individual unless they do a lot of really good writing and math work, right? So to the best learn documentation is when it's group learning and you really hear children talking to each other and negotiating and, you know, working off each other's papers, etc. Although I've, you know, I've certainly collected documentation on individuals, but I, I, um, a, a, a true value is really this idea of group of group learning and um, and how children can be inspired by each other and, and learn from each other and extend ideas with each other and and illustrating that for them as well. Having them, you know, I've had teachers take some video and then at the la end of the end of the day meeting show some of that video um, you have to show it twice first you got to get through the giggles and then you got to watch it again maybe even a third time to really you know what what do you see what did you hear what did you see and hear about um, how we work together as a group what are some things we should remember or what advice might we give to another group um, to be an effective learning group I'm glad you said this part about the giggling because I feel like there is a definitely onboarding process when you bring in recording equipment into the classroom, you have to kind of demystify it. Like in the beginning, the kids all want to like give, you know, fingers to the camera and smile and turn. Or even with teachers, I've been working with teachers before who I'll hand them a documentation instrument and they go around stopping kids from the process of learning so they can turn and smile for the camera. And I'm like, no, this isn't scrapbook creating, we're portfolio creating. I want to delve into process and make the camera invisible, so to speak. So I definitely find your, your point there. And then something about the immediacy, like the faster with our digital devices, this idea that like we can look at these things literally right after. And you mentioned this metaphor of sports and musical training of how uh, this is a healthy way that professional sports team use 
to at halftime review play by play, you know, what went on and what their new strategies will be. Why wouldn't we use that in lifetime learning? Does that make sense? Right, right. We spent so much, oh my gosh, right? The amount of money and time and game on sports and we watch it over and over and over again. I would love to see it over and over again when a child gets it, you know, or that aha moment happens or two kids who weren't getting along very well earlier in the week have finally figured out how they're bonding and, and collaborating. Those, those are magical moments. I would love to make that even more visible in just the general public. I would love to see more documentation of children's learning in the newspaper, you know, this podcast, you know, you know, maybe we create a podcast of children's learning. And Well, it's funny you say that because I, I, I attempted to change our publications department, which is really big, um, into a learning documentary establishment. And it was kind of an uphill battle. We made some progress. I mean, some great documentation went into some of the publications. And then they started pulling the, from our images that we were taking in the classroom. And some of those got used in, in the publications as well. It just seemed so much more authentic than sending a photographer around to uh, capture some superficial moments around the school. So, sorry, uh, I'm going to hit you with one more, and, and then we'll let you go. Um, this is called, like, We Don't All Learn the Same. So you wrote that the photos, videos, or phrases for, from a conversation illustrate progress, such as one boy's development of social skills, another's growth in new vocabulary, and another child's, child's ability to stay on task for longer periods of time. You, coming from special education, have worked with individualized education programs. How does documentation reveal that although we use standards as guideposts, kids do not all come standard. How can documentation be every student's IEP? I love that. I think we all need our own IEP. <laughs> that would be the ideal. <laughs> but, you know, and, and I have seen some schools, even school systems, who've created an IEP for every student in the district. But, yeah, how could we create a portfolio that's a bit more meaningful than just, a, like you said, a scrapbook or a collection of photos? We, you can collect all kinds of photos. which have such great digital devices now. But it's uh, unpacking those photos and putting some meaning. You know, we're making meaning here. And I don't think it has to be a thick portfolio. It could be a portfolio even that the child documents for themselves a bit of their learning. My children went to a public school, and um, I loved uh, mid-year, the children did a, uh, they made part of their own portfolio. And so the parent-teacher conference, it was really a parent-child conference, the teacher left the room. And um, it was the child's, was even starting in fifth grade, which shows some documentation of their learning. Um, and they, it was their responsibility to, to illustrate what they'd learned so far. I'd love to see more of that happening. There's so much more I would love to ask you, but I know that you have a time constraints. Um, one thing I didn't get to was the idea of documentation as product of learning. So, for example, monologues given by children that they prepare for and prepare for and iterate or, or screencasting, for example, uh, opening up this idea of, of private speech that when a kid isolates and, and creates their own media product, um, you often get something completely different than what they would do within the social presence. Uh, so kind of balancing the strengths of your environment, letting students use the cave, but also use the watering hole and the campfire as well. Um, but we save these for another discussion. How might people find um, what you're doing at Wheelock College um, and where might they find more of your work or examples of great documentation happening? Um, well, for quickly, just for the Doc Studio, we have a website. It's, so it's www.wheelock.com 
backslash doc studio. And so there's some information and blogs, etc. I know you found that as well. The Making Learning Visible website is great with a lot of resources and um, articles, short articles. I, I, I answer my emails. If people wanted to email me at Suarez at wheelock.edu. Um, but I'd, I'd love to carry on this conversation. The other One of your other questions was also about aesthetics. Um, so I'd love to talk about that as well. Um, it's been great. So it sounds like we will, we'll, we'll have you back. Then. That would yeah. be wonderful. <laughs> great. Um, thank you very much. Uh, we'll disconnect you if you just stay on the line for 60 seconds. And then we'll say okay. goodbye. Um, but okay. we'll stop broadcasting.